Thank you, Mary and Jeff um, and Mike, all people I recognize or know very well from when I did my ed and, and master's here. And it's, it's a great pleasure to come back. I really enjoyed my time here. I'm sure you, you will. It's, uh, I think it's a fantastic setup here at Bath. And uh, they've been highly successful in, in running this, both programs. And um, so it's a great pleasure for me to, to come back. Um, I've got a, I'm going to talk about a number of things, all related to the idea of a curriculum battleground. It's a bit jumpy, but I think there are um, there is a coherent argument in what I'm going to to present, and I'm going to try to challenge, constructively challenge, and be a little bit provocative because I think that's what you're supposed to do at these sorts of things. At least I hope so, um, and get you thinking. Um, I'm not saying you know at least. Uh, questioning maybe what I say, but at least questioning and then wanting to explore some of the ideas, maybe just one or two of them, or maybe quite a lot of them in a little bit more uh, detail. I'm going to cover quite a lot of ground quite fast. Mike says that these slides are available um, in physical form or at least electronically. If you contact me, then I can send them to you electronically. So at least you don't have to be writing stuff, just uh, don't, you know, at the same time, because you can, you can get these. Um, yourself. So those are the sorts, some of the themes I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm, I haven't timed this, but it, I promise it won't take more than 40 minutes because I want to allow time for questions at the end, maybe shorter, in which case we'll have more time for discussion and questions, in which case I better just check there's a clock over there. Yeah, okay. Um, and so the argument in, in summary is this. Um, essentially, the nature of international education is changing, and I'll, I think people are aware of that, but I'll briefly reference some of the material around that. Also, there's a lot of copying going on, not only in international schools, but national education systems trying to adopt what they perceive as international best practice, which raises a question, is there such a thing as international best practice, and if, it, if there is, what is it? Uh, I'm going to argue that, that, that that's a contentious idea and I think it's got to be seriously interrogated and thought about. Um, I think there are elements that you can, that there are part of a consideration of what it might be, but I don't think there is one solution uh, or approach that should be the, the approach that everybody adopts. Uh, I think culture in curriculum and pedagogy and education is hugely important and often under soul. People talk about school cultures and the importance of culture, but I don't think they really fully understand the implications of engaging local culture. Uh, and the conclusion is that. And I'll try at the end to talk about what a culturally sensitive approaches to curriculum pedagogy and assessment might involve some, some of the elements around that. Uh, this is well-reported research. I'm sure you're aware of it. The International Schools Consultancy, already this is a couple of years old. I think I got those figures from when they presented at the ECIS leadership conference in Brussels. I'm sure there are more up-to-date figures. Um, but essentially, um, what is an international school? Is itself a lecture, a, 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 all sort of, I mean, more than a lecture. You can do a, a, your PhD on it, your ED on it. But I'm not going to go into too much detail there. It's a contentious term, but essentially what what I'm interested in in terms of international schools here are schools that are either teaching, I'm following the, the ISC definition, which is contentious, schools that are teaching through the medium of English and or teaching English 
curricula, whether that be international uh, curricula designed from first principles to be international curricula or cur curriculum that are adapted from national systems to be international curricula or just curricula that are adopted straight out of national systems. Um, and so it's a self-referencing definition, and I understand that's contentious and that there are other ways of defining it. But nonetheless, in terms of, of, of the argument that I'm presenting, it has, it, it's, it, it's the most useful way of considering, because there are an enormous number of new schools that are trying to adopt best practice, and they're teaching largely through the medium of English. And in 1989, at least 80% of international schools were expatriate today, it's the other way around. My experience has been entirely in large, old-style international schools serving expatriate populations, except in Lesotho, interestingly enough. The first one I went to had about 80-90% local Basotho children and about 10-20-30% expatriates. But apart from that, it was all, I've got, you know, Vienna and Amsterdam, places like that were all genuine international schools. Um, it's not only, I'm not only interested in the, in the growing number of international schools, I'm interested in the fact, and we work a lot at Cambridge, and a lot of my job involves consultancy with ministries of education around national education reform. So I'm not talking about schools adopting curricula that are international, I'm talking about national, also there are implications for national ministries wanting to adopt international best practice. And this quote from Carmen's, I think, is very interesting. Um, the search for best practice is international. Uh, there are assumptions that there are easily borrowed protocols that can vastly improve local education systems. And this is based upon an assumption, which is false, uh, that a school is a school is a school. It assumes that a practice that works, say, in Finland will work well in the United States or Germany. It assumes education is like engineering. It's not like engineering. So there's a false premise in a lot of the arguments that are going on in terms of curriculum. And by the way, I mean, he talks about Finland in the United States or Germany. What about Finland in relation to China or India or Pakistan or, uh, you know, other, other countries which are culturally extremely different? You know, it, it's even a, a stronger uh, case. Um, I think you recognize Confucius and Socrates, and, and these two are often credited with... Uh, rightly, with strong cultural influences in terms of world views in Confucian heritage cultures and Western education. Uh, and there's been quite a lot, and I'm sure you'll, you'll deal with this in terms of your curriculum studies here around different cultural approaches to curriculum. And also, a lot of comparison that's been going on about Socratic approaches or Confucian approaches. And some simplistic generalizations are often made, I think, uh, comparing the two. There are real differences. I mean, here are is a summary of what you might, a simplistic summary of some of the statements that are often made about these two approaches to education. So Confucian is thoughtful acquisition, Western inquiry. Uh, Confucian, listen and learn first, then question, discuss. And, and there is some basis of truth in, in this. Learn by asking, discussing is this more progressive Western approach. Emphasis on effort and on ability and that could be interrogated a bit more. But certainly the Confucian idea of persistence not giving up, hard work. Uh, by not giving up, you can change an iron bar into a needle. It's, it's, it's something that's often quoted, evidently, in Chinese in schools. Or the idea, certainly, that everyone can do it if they work hard enough at it. Teacher as a, as a uh, 
wise leader who, who's knowledgeable, who, who, who has to be followed, rather than a facilitator of self-generated knowledge. Uh, these sorts of ideas tend to be um, propagated, and, and there's some truth in them. I'll come back to consider the implications, possibly, of some of those later on. What is this search for international best practice, and where does it come from? Um, again, I'm not going to spend too long on this part of the lecture, because I think a lot of this is well reported, and I'll just quickly skim through what I think some of the big influences are. The OECD, uh, Andreas Schleicher in particular, the challenge of 21st century education, I'll talk a bit about that. But certainly PISA, Tim's, Pearl's international league tables are presenting international positional competition in the same way that many national school systems have positional competition. And certainly many of the requests we get from Cambridge, at least initially, are from ministries who say we've got lousy Tim's results, lousy PISA results, help us improve. That's the first thing they say. It's not how can we improve the education, it's how can we improve our league table performance. And we challenge them on that and say, well, you know, but, but it's, a, it's a fact. It's a fact. Um, all of these sorts of things are, are, English as a world language is unquestionably a reason why English medium instruction is so popular around the world. I'm going to talk about constructivist learning paradigm also, which I think needs some interrogation later on. All of this um, it, it are driving uh, research for best international practice. And the idea that curriculum is more about now, about cultural transformation than transmission. When I, I remember learning from Jeff, I believe, D Dennis Lawton's work on culture and curriculum, uh, on curriculum as cultural transmission. Uh, and it was all around, are well, there cultural universals that you can transmit through curriculum? How do you make a selection from the culture to, to be reflected in a curriculum? I think arguably that's changed, certainly in terms of the things I hear, to cultural uh, transformation. That people don't, aren't just concerned about transmitting a culture, they want to change it. They want to make it they're, they're for economic reasons and, and, and because they believe there's such a thing as international best practice. They don't want to be left behind. Um, so there's the classic Lawton up there above, and then cultural transformation. Why, why are we interested in this? The idea that uh, the world has changed. A lot of 21st century skills, and I'm going to interrogate some things about that as well. Uh, uncertainty, there are certainly real changes. The world is uncertain. Uh, one, uh, Guy Claxton has a really good quote in one of his very early books about the purpose of education being to, to help people cope with uncertainty well. He wrote that in 1991, in his first book, I think, Teaching to Learn. And I, I think it's, he, was, he was absolutely right, even back then, even more right now, that none of us have jobs for life. Certainly we know that our younger generation are going to have multiple careers, jobs, and uncertainty is a fact of life. So all of these things are real. Uh, we live in an information-overloaded world, uh, multiple careers. All of these, these things are true. Um, so, you know, I'll come back to what the implications might be for curriculum and teaching but this, you know, this is driving the, the, the um, and this is a quote from Andreas Schleicher. I never know how to pronounce his name, but anyway. Um, he is the head of the OEC Education Directorate, CEO. A generation ago, teachers could expect what they taught would last their students a lifetime. Uh, today, 
students have, uh, and, and the famous bit of the quote says, uh, prepare students for jobs that have not yet been created, technologies that have not yet been invented, and problems that we don't yet know will arise. New ways of working, new, and all of these things. And this, this is the OECD. This isn't, this isn't ECIS or some CIS. This is, this is aimed at state national ministries of education. They read this stuff and they think, crikey, what have we got to do? We can't go on teaching the way we used to teach. This is, you know, we've got to change. We've got to adapt. We've got to make our workforce re relevant in, uh, for, the, for the 21st century. And there, this slide is often shown as well. And it's a powerful one. It shows that non-routine cognitive interactive is what the workplace demands. Um, and the, the, the skills that people need. It's, again, I'm not going to spend much time on it because you probably have seen it and it's, uh, it's well, well used. One of our close ministries we work most closely with is Singapore. At Cambridge we do, um, together with the Singapore Examinations Board and the Ministry of Education, we administer all of the high-stakes assessment for Singaporeans at Cambridge. And we have meetings with them on an annual basis to talk about educational issues, but also to, to look at uh, trends and, to sh and it, you know, they are a very, no, no one I have ever met thinks more or more deeply about problems and solutions than Singaporeans. Um, if, uh, there's a saying in Singapore, if, if, it, if, it, if it ain't broke, um, take it apart, look at it, put it back together again and make it work even better. Okay, they don't, they don't like the don't fix it thing. And, and they are perfectionist, which is good for us in some ways because we can't afford to make a mistake and we have to learn from them. So they set the bar very, very high. But, but for a Singaporean to say this is revolutionary because this is a Confucian heritage culture, highly driven by exam grades. Uh, good grades at school are not enough. Indeed, they may not even be relevant. Well, they still believe they're relevant, believe you me, and, and they're still highly examinations focused. And, you know, uh, uh, but they know it's not enough. And they really are looking in ways of reforming the national curriculum, and they have been for about 10, 15 years or more, uh, to, to really develop more competency-based approaches on a bedrock of really good disciplinary understanding. I'll come back to that later. But it's an interesting perspective. And that's the Singaporean current national curriculum. Uh, it looks a bit like an IB curriculum model or something like that. Um, and you can see the, the, all of these sorts of uh, things. But I go, I'll come back to it a bit later. Because, but you can see some of the arguments there. So what is this curriculum battleground? Well, you can see, and I've tried to emphasize a move to the modern. Maybe it's the postmodern. I get my moderns and postmoderns muddled up, but I don't know. You can debate that. But, but what I mean by modern is recent um, things on the right, and maybe the more, it's a simplistic and generalized traditional approaches on the left. Cultural transformation, more phenomenon, interdisciplinary process, skills-led, broad learning objectives with a focus on competences, all of these sorts of things on the right. And then you've got traditional on the left. So just some perspectives on uh, approaches to curriculum. Let's start with the more modern. I'm going to critique both uh, because I think there are many dangerous presumptions, assumptions and false reasoning that can follow from both positions. Um, one, one issue is, is this idea of 
disciplines being old. Uh, and I suppose the whole of education in terms of tradition being wrong. So, so the idea being that classrooms were, you know, are the same as they were in the 1850s. Subjects are more or less the same. The timetable's the same. Maybe, you know, desks are a little bit different in more progressive classrooms, but the teacher comes in and, you know, it, it's a very uh, false way of, of learning. So moving more towards, you know, uh, inquiry-based, phenomenon, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary. Finland, of course, is always held up as the epitome of excellence. I'm going to challenge that. Um, it's an excellent system, but I'm going to challenge some assumptions about it in a minute. But nonetheless, this is an article taken fairly recently, last year, from the Independent, supposed to be a reputable newspaper. And it talks about phenomenon teaching in, in, in Finland. And if you read the article and you don't research it further, it sounds like they've given up disciplines and their curriculum is now phenomenon-based and led. Well, actually, I think, I think they have to do one project every term or something like that. You know, in other words, it, it, it's a misrepresentation of what's actually going on in Finland if you actually read the article and don't do some investigations anyway. Um, and, of course, in Britain, they're interested in this because there's this debate about progressive versus traditional, back to basics, what's the best approach to education? And Finland is held up as the epitome of the model that we should be, we should be following. So, so uh, that's, that's one idea. Young is a, uh, argue, Mike, Mike, Michael Young, um, that... There's what he believes is a crisis in curriculum theory at the moment. He's talking largely about England, but you, it, it, you could talk about this in, in most other contexts. Um, and this, this, I suppose, is the counter-revolution or counter-reformation, or call it what you will, against sort of progressive modern approaches to pedagogy and curriculum. Um, is this curriculum meaningful to my students is the most important question, what are the, rather than what it should be, which is what are the meaning that curriculum gives my students access to. So for Michael Young, what you put on the curriculum are methodologies, approaches to thinking that structure our thinking so that we're more empowered as individuals. So the disciplines are there for a reason. They're teaching us powerful skills that we can use in everyday life. Uh, and we mustn't forget sight of this, and that this is a danger sometimes with more progressive interdisciplinary models. Not necessarily, but it can be. Uh, also, the distinction between knowledge and skills. And I think, again, that, that this is often simplistically made. That one simplistic argument is that knowledge is freely available. It's available on the internet. Therefore, students don't need to know. They need to learn skills to access the knowledge and to use it and so forth. Well, number of misconceptions there. One is that you can't apply skills without knowledge. The two are two sides of the same coin. Also, the idea, even down to levels of things like the importance of memorization and practice and diligent practice and basic operations, that um, one of the, I think it's really important to understand that to develop highly skilled practice and to develop higher levels of reasoning and critical thinking and metacognition can only be done on a basis of foundational knowledge and that there is a role for deliberate practice and, and learning that's really important in developing that, that, that ability to think at higher levels later on. You can't suddenly become competent at critical thinking without doing a, a lot of basic work as well. So, so, so in extreme, it's a dangerous argument. I'll come back to, to talk more about that in a bit. 
um, at Professor Elizabeth Rutter at the University of Auckland um, argues passionately in defense of knowledge. Uh, and she's talking here, I believe, about the New Zealand national curriculum, which moved to a very progressive um, inquiry-based curriculum at one point. But, and and there have been arguments about whether actually this is true. And, and, and I think a reasonable defense has been made of the New Zealand national curriculum. But anyway, um, the idea, she says, it's the misguided idea that the notion that knowledge is a process, that it's not content. This knowledge age or 21st century learning approach is gaining ground because it offers what some call an exciting digital utopianism. Dispense with the teacher, bring out the iPad, or if not dispense with the teacher, put the, the teacher as a facilitator. Uh, bring out the iPad, co-inquiry, but pupils don't know what they know, and, and these, this sort of idea. Um, Teacher who says, I co-inquire with my students, I learn from them, we construct knowledge together, does not deserve that status. Um, and, I, you know, an extreme position, but she, in extreme circumstances, she has a point. I, I'm trying to present different sides of, of the argument. I'll tell you what I think later. Um, another extreme counter-reformation or revolutionary position is Hirsch, E.D. Hirsch in the United States. Um, Actually, it's more to him than I first thought. I mean, I, my immediate reaction was very negative about, you know, reading about him. But actually, when you listen to him and you read some more of his, he, he's concerned about access in education. Uh, and he believes that, you know, you actually, there's a danger with ignoring basic literacy in terms of local national literacies, which involves knowing as well as being able to, he doesn't say skills aren't important. But he says skills need to be embedded in knowledge, and knowledge is important. And, there, and you have to cover basic knowledge things in order to, to give access to um, poorer socioeconomic groups to education. Otherwise, it's elite schools that, that, that tend to, to dominate. And, and he's, he's become highly controversial, sometimes misunderstood. But probably, you know, he, he's certainly one of the, the, the back-to-basics, back-to-knowledge people. In England, lots of discussion around going back to basics, because on the one hand you have newspaper articles like the Finland, let's copy Finland, and, the, and here you can see the copying idea again, importing best practice. Uh, let's, let's copy China, they've got the best PISA mass results in the world, or Singapore, um, and what do they do? And all sorts of interesting experiments about back to, to trendy teaching, chalk and talk, well what does that mean? But there's certainly that sort of um, pendulum, these very different perspectives on, on curriculum. Another issue is, is this idea of disciplinary and interdisciplinary understanding. Gérard Renault, interestingly enough, was one of, uh, and, and Jeff will correct me, I remember having a discussion about this, but I think it's true, in, I'm true in, in, right in saying that he's the only person significantly involved in the development of the IB diploma program in the 1970s and what was the forerunner to the IB Middle Years program, the ISAC curriculum, in the late 1980s, significantly involved, because he was significantly involved, certainly in the latter, uh, and I think in the former. But, but he says this, so this, you know, this is somebody who's essentially, you know, from a very international perspective, uh, but he's trying to, to stress the importance of disciplinarity, understanding of the methodologies associated with different disciplines on which to build a serious interdisciplinary understanding. And the great danger of starting with interdisciplinary understanding and transdisciplinary without having the building blocks on which to make real um, meaningful. And you know, so we're doing lots of project work may develop 
confident and, and people who can communicate, but does it develop competence as well? And, and you know, there are issues and questions around, around that. And you can argue, of course, both are important. I'll come back to that later. This slide is taken from a Cambridge International Examination this year uh, in Karachi. Um, and they say a picture says a thousand words. There are over 4,500 students in one examination hall, over 200 invigilators. This is one of several examination centers in Karachi alone. And this, this is the new generation of international schools. When I, when I remember being an invigilator in international schools exams, we may, I think Vienna was the largest school I worked at. We had maybe 100 students sit in exam, it was the largest exam, uh, and the school staff would do the invigilation themselves for, for various reasons, security being one of them. We organised, this is organised through the British Council on behalf of Cambridge. Um, you can see there, we don't want any cheating, we want the school not to worry about the exam, you know, the British Council provide it. This is, this is the nature of um, you know, exams. Now clearly, is this form of assessment appropriate in the modern world? That's a very good question. I'll come back to that later on. But um, I can assure you it's reliable assessment. <laughs> There's no cheating going on. Okay, But, but is, it, is it assessing what we value? Well, that's a, that's a fair question. I mean, it, anyway, I'll come back to that. But issues around assessment. And, of course, a lot of the press is that assessment is the devil. You know, we need to get away from big summative exams, move towards more authentic assessment that's relevant for the modern world. Um, it's not new, this idea. This, this is a, an interesting quote from Thomas Huxley in 1860. <laughs> Students work to pass, not to know. They do pass and they don't know. I think that's... Uh, I've heard universities say that very recently in England and other things, you know, about failings in the exam system, particularly modular A levels and things like that, where you really do SWAT. But, you know, IB in Cambridge, I think, do better than that. But anyway, there is some, you know, but it's certainly the backwash effect. We all know the backwash effect of what's assessed and how it's assessed will affect what's taught and how it's taught. And there's no question about that. And clearly, all examination authorities have a responsibility for uh, trying to prov provide the best possible assessments that there are. Exams are absolutely indescribable in, in some Confucian heritage cultures. The Gao Kao in China, this is, happens to be in, in, in South Korea. It's talking about the Gao Kao. There's a picture from South Korea. But it's high stress. Is it appropriate for the modern world? Very, very fair questions. Um, and clearly, authentic assessment is, is important. But equally then, you know, and, and I'm not... It's absolutely true. I'm going to speed up a bit because of the time and I'll come back and talk about some of these issues later on. There are issues here, though, um, with uh, assessment in Confucian, for example, in Confucian heritage cultures. Um, Carlos, David Carlos, wrote extensively about his experience working with, in Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong Examining Board. Uh, and when, in the 1990s and 2000s, they tried to reform very significantly away from the mass exam hall things that are pictured earlier on, much more towards school-based assessment, uh, and came across really important cultural problems about perceptions of the teacher both being an assessor and a teacher in Confucian heritage cultures, and a direct conflict of interest. 
Uh, and he argues that it's actually not possible to ask teachers in Confucian heritage cultures to do summative assessment. You can ask them to do formative assessment because they perceive their role and the society perceives their role as trying to... They have a responsibility to get the best result for the student. Um, and the extent to which school-based assessment can operate fruitfully in Confucian heritage cultures remains open to question. Um, he talks about this and he, he's talking about the practical real world here. Uh, and that's the world in which I work and we all work. Um, and he's talking about culture and how it influences assessment in, in, in certain contexts. So the, that's another. That's a picture taken in uh, Bihar. Uh, it was published in, in the BBC of an exam going on with some questionable practices in terms of um, cheating going on. So, you know, and we know, and, and, and I know, I won't mention the country. But we were, we, we, we were asked to help develop an, edu uh, an assessment system in a country which had an a, a institutional cultural practice where uh, to beat the system, the brightest kids, uh, they have a, a, a national test, which, which, which is the test used for university entrance, and the brightest kids were always put at the front and they had, and vigilators in the school allowed a signalling process where the kids in the front would put up the one finger for the question and then they would give the right answer and the kids behind would copy the ones at the front. And this was, this was, this was known by the, the Ministry of Education and asked us to do something about this to, to create a system that was fairer in terms of assessment. So, so we know that assessment, high-stakes assessment, has to be valid, but it's also got to be reliable. It's no good having authentic assessment if, unless you can be sure that it's, it, you, you're actually assessing true, you know, what students actually do. This is the real world. Okay, um, for the last 10 minutes or so, I'm going to, I've, I've presented some problems and challenges. I'm going to try to say what I think some of the approaches might be. There, there are not magic wands here, or, but there are, there are some reflections on what I think um, we have to accept and, and, and then think about. One thing I think it's important is that curriculum, and, and you, again, you, 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 as you know from your studies, curriculum uh, is a, means that you have to define what you mean by curriculum. Curriculum means the, the written curriculum, the taught, the experienced, the assessed, the intended, the unintended. There are all of these different curriculums. But essentially, it's a holistic concept. I think you've got to look at it from, from a holistic point of view. And it's not the same as qualifications. I, I would make a clear distinction between qualifications, academic qualifications, and cricket is a much broader and much more important concept than qualifications. Sometimes schools think the two are synonymous. Actually, curriculum is much broader, much more important. Making sense of the curriculum has to be done locally because you've got to... Curriculum is a practical thing. It's got to be not only... Uh, it's got to be ide ideological, it's got to be based on the vision and mission of the school, which has got to be based upon the culture and the context in which the school is located at that particular point in time. Uh, and only the school can make sense of the curriculum. One size doesn't fit all, each school is a unique community, and, and it's really important that curriculum is understood as a local construct, a local idea. Another thing about schools and education is that schools are part of a community. And this is again emphasizing the cultural points. The parents, the local community, are critical in the child's education. And in terms of, uh, in terms of really engaging culture, 
if you don't get parents to understand the, the, the type of teaching that's used in a school and to support it, it won't work. You'll have surface level acceptance. You may, you know, you, you'll do your professional development. The teachers will talk the talk. And they'll do various approaches, maybe Western approaches to pedagogy and so forth. But they're not really embedded into the local culture unless you get the parents on board and you really sort that out. And this takes, this is difficult. This, this, you know, you've got to maybe have some compromises initially. Come up with a curriculum that works. Bring the, the more I work in education, the more I think schools are in existence to, to, to teach parents, not children. Because if you don't have the parents associated with, you know, with what's going on, the school's really not going to work particularly well. A school that does empower the parents and gets them on board and the local community is, has a chance of being an outstanding school. Now, I, I get a bit frustrated because I keep hearing constructivism talked about as an approach to teaching. Uh, it may be implied, but, but that's what people are saying. Constructivism often, in articles I've read or in talks I've been to, is considered to be synonymous with inquiry-based teaching. Um, this is a definition that, that I accept, a simple definition. It happens to be from Gordon Stobart, but it's, it's incontentious, in my opinion, about what constructivism is. It, it, it's, constructivism is a well-established theory of cognition that explains how learning happens. Uh, and it's, I believe it's, it, it's a law in the same way as gravity is a law. It's so well established. It, it, it is, I believe, true. But it's got to be understood as a theory of cognition. And essentially it says that all of us humans, no matter where we come from or where we live, construct knowledge based upon our experience. And you could argue certain a priori intuitions um, in the sort of can't sense of the word, but, but, but in, in terms of, for example, language, the language instinct, for example, we all have, which we activate through our experiences. And that develops concepts and understandings of the world around us that are very solid. And you have to engage this child's understanding of the world really seriously, challenge it, shake it, and improve it. That's what education is about. So there may be implications for teaching, but what we're talking about is, 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 is a theory that explains how we make sense of the world around us. We construct our understanding. Um, some of the implications of this, I accept that. I think particularly the idea of Vygotsky's zone of proximal development is a really important idea here because the idea, of course, is you need to challenge students beyond, you know, challenge their current concepts, improve them, maybe even fundamentally change them and develop understanding, and, and scaffolding in, in, in Vygotsky's zone is really, really important. But some people then immediately say, well, that must involve inquiry. And it's immediately associated with, with approaches to teaching and learning, which are inquiry-based. Now, inquiry is an extremely important approach to teaching and learning, but it's not synonymous with constructivism, and it can be quite dangerous when it's assumed that it is. Uh, I refer to John Hattie, who is quoted numerous times in conferences and by, by various people. And, and is an, uh, his work is fascinating and really important. And people pick from it what they want. But, but this slide is particularly interesting. It's the teacher active learning, facilitative learning. Um, and it's a bit simplistic to say, but inquiry-based teaching has a, has a low effect size compared to visible learning, all of these sorts of things. Direct instruction, well done, is extremely powerful, well done, and inquiry-based teaching, well done, because in fact, 
inquiry-based teaching, I would argue, is implicit in lots of these things. But that doesn't mean kids going off and doing bits of inquiry with the teacher as facilitator. It means that the teacher always actively involving the student and challenging the student. And actually, one of the misconceptions about Chinese classrooms is that they're didactic. The teacher stands at the front and lectures the kids. Kids copy down ideas, not constructivist, empty vessel, poor in knowledge, transmission. Not true. Research done on effective teaching in Shanghai shows that the classrooms are highly active. The teacher is highly professional at engaging students in their zone of proximal development with, with, a, with a mindset of can-do, and we're all going to solve this together. None of us are going to give up. Diligent practice, all of these things in a highly active learning environment. So simplistic generalizations can be very wrong, and I think it's important we challenge some of these things and, and read Hattie as has he. Another fact about Hattie that's interesting, and he says this himself, is that actually all the research is done in America, Australia, New Zealand, and I think England are the only places in which all of these meta-analyses were carried out. Uh, and there's a real need in education for research into, in, into what works in Asia and, and Confucian heritage cultures. But I do believe that there are lessons that are probably universal and gener generalizable from this. And my own experience as a teacher and principal and working in, for the IB in Cambridge is that these things work when they're done well. When I read it, for the first time, I recognized instantly from my own experience visible learning, visible teaching, because that is helping the student understand where they are uh, and challenging their, their assumptions, challenging their thinking, however it's done, uh, whole class or group inquiry, which may vary from culture to culture. But these, this is, I think, a really important idea. I think we've got to focus on powerful knowledge. Um, I, I worry about curriculum that's, I think we've got to design curriculum around disciplines and then build interdisciplinary understanding. A teacher's job is to build bridges in students' minds between what they learn in one part of a course and another and between what they learn in one course and another course. The, the, the teaching for transfer is really important, but you, you, you need to build some solid bits of understanding and then build the transfer, not the other way around. I worry more about uh, approaches that are, that are too much, and there's a place for all sorts, you know, there's a place for units of interdisciplinary inquiry in a curriculum. I completely think there are. It's a matter of balance and a matter of, uh, and you might vary that balance depending upon the culture of the school. Um, in some cultures it will work probably better than in other cultures. You've got to take into account the reality on the ground. Um, the curriculum should be broad and balanced, but what that means will, will partly be determined by the local culture and context of the school. And there is a tendency to overload curriculum with too much stuff, too many qualifications. This needs to be resisted, because we do know that coverage is the enemy of understanding. And if you try to do too much, you'll end up doing it superficially, and you won't develop the powerful knowledge that we really need. So trimming back the curriculum, I think, is a really important idea, but also understanding things like creative artistic enterprise. And, and, and goods and subjects well taught are creative. You know, teaching science should be creative. The idea that all creativity is just in the arts, I think, is simply wrong. And I think good teachers and good training of teachers can really help develop some of these sorts of ideas. Um, I believe 
the more and, and the more I've read about this and experienced it and work, working in different contexts, one of the most powerful things we can do for young people is, 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 is develop bilingualism. I, I, the, the research done by people like Peter Mahisto into uh, the power of bilingualism in terms of developing neural uh, 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 the, the spin-offs, apart from the instrumental value of speaking more than one language and the cultural value of, un of speaking through more than one language, there are enormous benefits in terms of the ability to retain information and to apply it in different contexts. There seems to be a lot, quite a lot of evidence, rich evidence, that, that the spin-offs and, and the value of bilingualism is hugely important. Many international schools are, you know, are teaching predominantly through English and not supporting mother tongue entitlement enough. I think that's profoundly mistaken and wrong. And we've got to really try to help students develop bilingual competence. I think that's a really important idea. These are some of the benefits from um, Peter Mahisto talks about. Metacognitive advantages as well, ability to self-regulate. These sorts of things seem to, to be higher in, in students who are who are who are bilingual so so you know I certainly am a great supporter of bilingualism selective depth I've mentioned this I'm going to quickly speed on because I am going to finish very very shortly very important Singapore I mentioned before in the midnight uh, about 10 years ago introduced a slogan less is more and they trimmed back their national curriculum content to try to to, to really to focus on depth and, and, and understanding and, and really work with, with key concepts and key ideas. Because if students really dig deep into disciplinary understanding and understand key concepts, they can, they can understand the other stuff much more easily. It, it's a, it, depth is extremely important in terms of, of curriculum. Um, offering, these are just some, some examples from, from Cambridge, of course other, others will have different, but, but I would argue there's a place for creative and, and broad and balanced curriculum. I'm not going to spend much time on that. Um, nothing is more important than, than teaching. I'm reminded of um, Dylan Willem, who says, uh, he says that um, curriculum is pedagogy, and that, I think I'm pretty, pretty verbatim quote, is that a, uh, a bad curriculum well taught is invariably a better experience than a good curriculum badly taught. Uh, and he knows what he's talking about, and, and you know, I think, uh, so I think, you know, th th this, is, this is a real challenge because, you know, developing learning with culturally sensitive pedagogies is really, really important. I really worry about us in the West going in and teaching inquiry-based learning and all of these sorts of things uncritically in cultures where it's not natural. I, th I think I, the elements of it are important, of course they are, but I, I, I think it's really important to have some sort of sense of balance in the way we, we do these things. Um, I'm almost going to rush on. That's an obvious thing. Assess what we value, not just value what we assess. I mean, I'd love to get rid of exams. Um, I really would. But I don't see an alternative because, again, if you think about well-designed exams, um, they do test higher-order thinking skills. I think you know, there is a place for coursework and all the rest of it. But it's the only fair way to get selection currently into universities and, and, and into further education. Um, it, it provides more equal access. It's a very important tool. It goes, you know, if you go back to the, the civil service selection exams in Confucian times, the whole point was to try to get access by ability, not by 
patronage and by, by right, and there is still a, a really important process. Maybe th there will be a revolution, and certainly exams will go online quicker, you know, sooner rather than later. But there's, st there's still the process of being able to assess in reliable conditions. There's a real problem, a real difficulty, and, and maybe it'll be solved around authentic assessment, in, 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 where, you know, which really can be absolutely sure of no cheating or plagiarism, a fair playing field and all the rest, but it's, there's lots of work to be done in that area. I'm going to stop there. It's pretty much the end because I promised to, to be no more than 40 minutes and we've got a little bit of time for questions and discussion.